Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to Facing Evil, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV. This podcast contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Facing Evil. I'm Yvette Gentile. And I'm Rasha Pecorero. This week, we are talking about the shocking death of Misty Upham, a 32-year-old indigenous actress whose star was on the rise in Hollywood. Misty was in movies like August, Osage County, Django Unchained, and Frozen River. She also appeared in TV shows like Big Love, and she was applauded as an indigenous woman for achieving a measure of mainstream success. Yes, but her personal story reveals a life full of tragedy, including sexual violence, racial prejudice, and mental illness. There were signs for months that Misty was in crisis, but even as a burgeoning movie star, she was unable to get the help that she so desperately needed. After she died, actors like Juliette Lewis were outspoken in their rage about this tragic loss, which they insist was completely preventable. But the real question is, how did Misty slip through the cracks? Today, we're talking once again with our friend, Jim Trainum, a private consultant and former detective with the Metropolitan Police Department. Yes, but now our producer, Trevor, is going to walk us through today's case. Misty Upham has been found now. Officials say a family member found her along a river near Seattle. Upham was reported missing by her family October 6th. Her father said the star was suicidal. Her dad also said Misty had stopped taking medication for anxiety and bipolar disorder before she disappeared. When I found acting, I found home. And it was like a home that nobody could take away from me. Misty Upham was a 32-year-old woman who was found dead at the bottom of a ravine in Auburn, Washington on October 16th, 2014. She had disappeared 11 days earlier. Misty was a Native American actress, well known for roles in films like Django Unchained and August Osage County. She was also a member of the Blackfeet Nation tribe in Montana. Misty was born in 1982 to Charles and Mona Upham. The family moved back and forth for years, on and off the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. 
Her father, Charles, was determined to get his children away from the reservation, which he viewed as a dead end. In addition to frequently moving, Misty experienced discrimination. One best friend was once forbidden from playing with her after her parents learned she was native. On the reservation, Misty was frequently jumped and beat up for having more money than other kids. At age 13, she was gang raped on the reservation and began to suffer panic attacks. She was prescribed psychiatric medication, but she abused it and began abusing alcohol as well. She also began cutting herself and considered suicide. Despite these considerable hardships, Misty had ambitious dreams. She wanted to act, and she got her start in a nonprofit youth theater group for indigenous kids. Misty's star began to rise in earnest in the early 2000s, with an appearance in the film Skins. She went on to appear in more TV movies and shows, including Big Love and the aforementioned Django Unchained. In 2013, she landed a role as a housekeeper in August Osage County. This role threw her in with a star-studded cast that included Meryl Streep, Julia Roberts, and George Clooney. But her hardships continued. At the Golden Globe Awards earlier that year, she was allegedly raped by a Weinstein Company executive in a bathroom. She did not report the rape because she feared retribution from the company and the industry. The next year, she moved from California to Washington State to help care for her father after he suffered a stroke. In Washington that summer, Misty had a hard time re-establishing her psychiatric care and relied on the ER for treatment for her depression, PTSD, and bipolar disorder. As the summer wore on, her mental state declined. She experienced several breakdowns, during which her family had to institutionalize her involuntarily. During one such incident, police officers mocked her claims of being a Hollywood actress. On October 5, 2014, Misty was in a bad state. Fearing for her safety, her father called 911. She saw this and fled the house. Charles Upham ran after her, but was stopped by arriving police, who insisted on searching the house, even as he told them she'd fled. The cops refused to search for Misty outside the house, saying they had to wait until she'd been missing for at least 24 hours. After the fact, the police commander said that this was not at all their policy. The next day, Charles reported Misty missing. The detective assigned to the case repeatedly refused to organize a search, saying, according to Charles, quote, she's probably off partying somewhere. Six days later, on October 13th, the detective in charge wrote to an officer asking about the outcomes of the search results. She responded, quote, outcome, nothing has been done yet. And then three days later, a volunteer search team organized by the family discovered Misty's body in a steep ravine near the apartment where she'd been staying. The volunteer party, all indigenous individuals, said the police did not thank or help them. Police eventually found no evidence of foul play, and the family believed that she slipped and fell into the ravine while fleeing her home. The circumstances surrounding the investigation into Misty Upham's disappearance caused an uproar and drew attention to a larger problem. At the time of her disappearance, she was just one of thousands of missing indigenous women in North America. And so, what happened to Misty Upham? Why did the police ignore her disappearance? And how does the story reflect the need for better resources in cases of missing or murdered indigenous women? Well, we have a lot to talk about with the case of Misty Upham. And to help us work through this, we are very excited to welcome back 
Jim Trainum. He is a private consultant and a former detective with the Metropolitan Police Department. Thank you again for, for coming on. I'm glad to be here. So whatever insight I can offer, I'm happy to do it. Well, you know, before we get into the case, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what you've been working on? We know that you just finished Freeway Phantom, which is, you know, out and it's an incredible, incredible podcast. I recommend all of our listeners to download that particular podcast, but talk about that or tell us what you're doing. Yes, there's a couple of podcasts that I have been involved in trying to help get information out about older cases like the Freeway Phantom Mm -hmm. and all of that. And in the Freeway Phantom case itself has some similarities with with this case in that it involved, you know, African-American girls and uh, back in the 70s. And the police response was actually pretty slow at first for many reasons. One is the department was occupied with anti-war demonstrations back during the Vietnam War. Watergate was, you know, happening. So resources kept getting pulled off. But also these cases at first were just not given the priority that uh, we have come to learn is necessary. And so when you look at these old cases, you're not only, you know, looking at them with an eye towards trying to, you know, solve them, but you're also highlighting some of the problems that they existed back then, but many of them still exist today. It's important that we try to learn from our mistakes and get better at what we do. But oftentimes, because law enforcement is so fragmented, in this country, that it's difficult to you know get the message out there, especially to like some of the smaller departments that don't have the resources right, right, of larger right. ones as well. That's so true, Jim. And you know, with Freeway Phantom, that's back in the seventies, but Misty Upham was much more recent. But she was also mm-hmm. a person yes. of color who was overlooked. Like, what were your first impressions or reactions when learning about Misty's case? Just that it's, and this is going to be depressing, is that this is not a atypical type of case. Mm-hmm. It's not one that stands out as being all that unusual. You see cases like this or cases that have these components occur all the time. And oftentimes it's um, it's because of the way the system works or doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's our own biases that we bring to the table when we're trying to make decisions and, you know, just people become defensive rather than say, yeah, we made a mistake. This is what we need to do or mm-hmm. you know, change it, that sort of thing. So, you know, that's that's what really kind of struck me. Not only the things about it that you can say are unusual, but just how usual this case is. It's so true. You know, I I was familiar with the case because you know, there was a, a a few movies that I loved, which was Frozen River. So I was I was familiar with who she was and I loved her her subtlety of acting. Did you know about this case? Like how familiar were you with this case? I wasn't familiar with it at all until you reached out to me and wow. I started looking over some of the material right there. So a lot of these cases don't get out into the public unless her background in movies and all of that, mm-hmm, right. that made it more interesting to some people. You know, when I started looking into it, one of the things that really struck me was how self-aware Misty was of her problems. Yeah, yeah. She recognized that she 
definitely had mental health issues. Yes. She knew where they came from. She wanted help. But when she spiraled out of control, of course, that's when her rational side was lost. Yeah. And so, you know, that's what they were having to deal with. The other thing is, is that, you know, just the issue with mental health in this country, you know, law enforcement agencies are finally saying, you know, this is something that we really can't handle. I mean, we're, we're ill-equipped to handle. Right, and right. yet it's forced upon us all the time. Oftentimes, like in this case, you know, you get a call, you get there, you're supposed to handle it quickly and move on to the next call. Right. And cases like this, you can't handle quickly. No. But just the fact that, you know, she wanted help and they went to get her help. And because of the funding that was available to her, she was put off for months. And just from my own experience, when somebody who has mental health issues, when they say, I want help, they need it then. It has to happen then because they're not in a position where they can put it off. They're ready now. Right. And so uh, that's one of the biggest uh, obstacles that we really need to overcome, that when you're ready, it has to be there. Her having to rely on on emergency room care Mm -hmm. for her mental health treatment, that was far from the best. Yeah. And then, like I said, law enforcement officers being called to come in and step into a situation that they're ill prepared Mm -hmm. for and that their response is, okay, snatch her up, get her to the hospital. Oh no, she's kicked out again. Uh, Here we go again. You know, that sort of thing. So they become callous. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an interesting word that you chose, Jim. Like, you know, I put myself in that position and I never had or have had mental health issues the way that Misty was open about having, but I myself have definitely been through PTSD and trauma, but I was fortunate and am fortunate enough to be in therapy. I was in trauma therapy, you know, after witnessing a a traumatic death on board as a flight attendant. And I remember going through that intensive therapy and counseling and thinking, oh my God, I wish every single person who had ever been through any type of trauma could go through this so that you have tools to use when you get into those dark, dark places. And you're so right. Like mental health, it needs to be available to everyone. And police officers they're not trained in that. Yeah. And that's that's not their fault, but that's definitely something we need to take a step towards or getting people who are trained in mental health to maybe go on these calls with police officers. I, I don't know what the answer is. I'm just... Well, at least have a resource that you can call. Yeah. yeah. Have somebody you can reach out to and say, this is my situation. You know, what do I do? Right. Who do yeah. I talk to? Right. Help me walk through this. I just remember decades ago, back during my paramedic days. Oh, you were a paramedic. I worked as a firefighter paramedic for Arlington County for many years, which is right next to DC. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, having people with mental health issues who would repeatedly call for medical services and then trying to set up something so that they wouldn't have to call 911. Right. right? So that they had something in place. I just remember being on the phone for hours getting bounced from one to the other. It's somewhat better now, but still, mm-hmm. you know, the law enforcement officer, he's out there. He, he He's, you know, basically told you got to handle this situation quickly. And just looking at the annual report of this department, they are a small agency. Mm. Now, it does not excuse many things that happen right. in this right. case. It does not excuse like when that one time 
when she had a crisis and she was taken into custody, the officer taunting her. Right. Yeah. It, it doesn't excuse the fact that when the complaint was initially made, the department responded, oh, no, we we responded appropriately and compassionately. Wow. And yet later on, when it's under invest, further investigation, the officer admitted that, yeah, I did that. But of course, the excuse that he gives is that he was trying to shake her out of it or whatever, you know, that sort of thing. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. You know, Raja, you, you know, you were very fortunate to have all the resources, like you said, but there are so many that don't have any resources or no. or anyone to reach out to. And then if the 911, you know, is called, the police come and these people are having manic episodes or they're going to end up going to jail, not to ER first. And that's a whole nother experience in itself, right? Our first step is to control. You know, we, we're going to bring the situation under control. And the way that we control things is through force and through incarceration. Mm -hmm. And once the person gets incarcerated for something like this, then, you know, they have that stigma. Yeah. Right? So can incarceration, even, for, you know, for, for minor things, can cause them to maybe lose a job, lose health insurance. So it's a downward spiral. Yeah. But I do appreciate you saying that, you know, police officers, they're just, they're not equipped to handle that type of situation. So, you know, because we have a lot of police officers in our family and they're amazing human beings, mm -hmm. but there comes a time, you know, where you need other parties to come in and, and handle these particular situations. So again, we've come a long way, but we still have such a long way to go. And like you said, this wasn't all that long ago. No, no. I haven't been able to pull up anything on the department's 
you know, current policies in reference to missing persons or mental illness and all of that. But in going through like their 2018 annual report, there was really nothing in there mm. about, you know, them handling this. So four years later, after this happened, you know, they hadn't really made any public adjustments to, you know, deal with situations like this. And, you know, hopefully by now uh, they have been. But still, even if you have processes in place, like supposedly they claim they did here about reporting missing persons, mm-hmm. like, you know, the officer first told the family that, oh, you can't report a missing person for 24 hours. Is that true, though? I thought that wasn't even a... That's not true. Okay. Yeah. I didn't think that was a real policy. And in fact, over the last, God, even before this occurred, most agencies were saying, no, you you take a missing person report right away. Now, maybe it's because she didn't fall into a neat box. Mm, Okay. Because she had just run out of the home. Right. She was suicidal. She was in a crisis. And yet, technically, she's not missing. You know, could they have thought of it that way? Yeah. But because they classified it as a suicidal, you know, incident or whatever. But a lot of agencies, my old agency as well, this would have been classified as a critical missing person. Right. Because Because she was suicidal. suicidal. Exactly. Right. Which means you set up a command post, which means you pull out the stops and you, you know, get out there and you start, you know, putting it out on the news Mm -hmm. and you start doing your searches and things like that. I noticed that one of the, criticisms that the family had was that when the police first arrived there, they, you know, stopped the father who was trying to go after Misty. And then they searched the house. And I'm going, well, why would they do that? Right. She's not in the house. The only thing I can think of is that when it comes to like missing children, one of the first things that you do is you actually search the house because sometimes they're hiding in the house or they've fallen asleep at a closet or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so maybe they were doing it because they knew that she was in a crisis. Maybe she was in the house, whatever. They just wanted to be sure. I mean, based on the scenario that we have here, and I don't have a full understanding because I don't know like how close her body was found to her house. It wasn't very far, far, I believe. And so the scenario that, yeah, she was trying to get away and she went down there and fell. She might have been, you know, dead by the time they found her if they had continued the search. But, you know, she might not have been. We don't know the extent of her injuries and things along that line. And that's the question we're we're here to answer, right? I mean, or at least what how could it have been prevented? Exactly. Well, the prevention part would have come through you know, better services for her to help her control her crises. The other part is is that if the police response wasn't to take control, just get her to the hospital and that's it. And the fact that she's learned from past experience, you know, the police aren't here to help me. Right. That's why she ran. Right. So um, all of that combined right there played a part in this. Do you think a lot of it had to do, or at least some of it had to do with the fact that she was indigenous, she was a Native American and I'm not trying to say anything bad about the Auburn Police Department, but I'm assuming there were tensions and maybe that had something to do with it. I mean, Washington, Montana, the Dakotas, I think there's a lot of tension if that's the politically correct thing to say. 
Well, there's a lot of mistrust because just of bad experiences that they've had with contact with the police. And and if you don't respond well to the police, the police can have a bias against mm-hmm. you. And they start looking at all of a certain class of people the same way. Right. And we all have our biases. Right. And we can recognize our bias. And we can say, I am not going to let that impact the way that I'm making a decision here, just by acknowledging it at the time. Right, right. But yeah, just in cases that I have worked that involved, you know, reservations and and you know, Indian countries, places like that, and law enforcement, there is not much, you know, love between the groups right there. Yeah, or trust. You know, the thing about it is, I think that's it's so sad and so disappointing is that. She had interactions with the police a few times, you know, because her parents had called 911, you know, because she was dealing with, you know, mental health issues like bipolar and, you know, she had been abused. So she had these episodes. So they already knew who she was. Let's just say that, right? It's a small community. Mm -hmm. Right. But so now they get this call. And like the father said, you know, she's not in the house. They still go in the house and they don't do what they're supposed to do. Now, now you got to think, this is like the third, fourth time, and they know that there's something wrong with her. But instead of being ill-equipped to handle it with compassion, knowing that someone is is sick and needs help, therefore, they don't even go and check to see if she's in the near vicinity. Nobody really knows exactly what happened, but we do know that she was found you know, 25 feet down this ravine by her family members, not by the police. They didn't put anything out like on social media. And I think that's what the family was so upset about, because if it would have been the chief's daughter or someone else, the mayor's daughter or someone else who was in a higher status, so to speak, they would have looked for her or him. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, we deny that. But if you just look at the response that law enforcement gives to different types of uh, cases involving different types of people, right. mm-hmm. we don't treat everybody equal across the board. And there's lots of reasons for that, you know. But, you know, like I said, bias is one of mm-hmm. them. Also, public you know, pressure. You know, the media mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes, they won't publicize these things. And it's a lot of times it's the media that drives these investigations and drives, you know, people to go above and beyond. Yeah. But here, you know, like I said, they just have somebody, here we are again. We took her into the hospital last time. Why isn't the hospital keeping her? Right. You know, she's out here again. And so I can't say that they fell into that trap, of course, because I don't know everything about the case, but that is a trap that we do fall into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate because I really think, you know, if they would have, taken the time to search, you know, this is just my opinion from, you know, reading all the details in the research, if they would have taken the time to to search for her, you know, if in fact she fell down that ravine, hit her head, she could have been saved. But instead, her body was there for 11 days. That's a very rough place, it sounds like. I mean, very hard to get to. They couldn't even get, you know, the medical examiner down there to view the body because it is so rough. And all of that. Yeah. But her purse was visible, you know, once you got off the road, you know, just like in the freeway phantom case. Right. Like the second victim wasn't recovered, you know, for days, even though they had reports of a body off the roadside, simply because the officer didn't get out of the car 
and go look over the guardrail. I mean, this is obviously far-fetched. I just still want to ask the question. We don't think the police department was involved in any way in her death, right? I mean, we don't think they were trying to cover up anything. They were just probably got callous with the situation. You know, the only cover-up was when they decided that they weren't going to acknowledge their prior actions mm-hmm. and also acknowledge that they could have done things differently. Yeah, That's yeah. the big problem. And that's really, you know, the uh, takeaway from this is that cases like this, we can learn so much from. Yes. You know, one of the things that law enforcement is encouraged to do these days is old sentinel event reviews. So this is an event that nobody wanted to happen. Right. Of course. That's one thing we can acknowledge. Absolutely. And it's not just the law enforcement's fault. A lot of people involved, a lot of people made decisions over a period of time that led to this. So what we need to do is not look at blaming this one officer and all of that, but look at the big picture. Yeah. And look at all the things that contributed to this, not only the officer's individual actions, but the policies and procedures that were in place, their training, uh, what decisions their supervisors were made. Mm-hmm. In a lot of agencies, the officers would have been making these decisions. They would have been made by a supervisor called to the scene mm-hmm. yes. who would, you know, like I said, set up a command post and go from there. And it doesn't sound like just, you know, the officers kind of handled it and then went off by themselves. Now, I know that there was uh, some talk about the FBI getting involved because the FBI does investigate crimes on the reservation, but they don't investigate crimes off the reservation. And this wouldn't have fallen under their jurisdiction. Uh, Right. I know there was a question about suicide versus accident. I I had read something that the medical examiner couldn't determine the cause of death. And, And there's kind of a mix up there in terminology. The cause of death is like blunt force trauma, mm-hmm, drowning, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. You know, the manner of death is like, um, you know, homicide, suicide, accidental or unknown. Mm-hmm. And could it be possible that she went down there and threw herself off? I don't think the blunt, you know, the, the, the medical examiner is going to be able to say that, you know, just based on the injuries themselves. Yeah. I think. A more likely scenario was that she was trying to hide and she went into an area that was going to be a great place to hide and she just fell. Yeah, I guess it's that's what's, you know, so hard to determine. Like, I mean, I don't know because we I wasn't there. But, you know, when you think of a blunt force trauma to the head, you don't know if that could have happened before she fell or if she actually, like you said, just actually took a misstep. Mm -hmm. Yes. Some people had come forward and said that she had tried to get into a house where there was a party and she had been beaten and killed there. Oh. A couple of things. I mean, she did have a very high level of alcohol in her when she died. Mm-hmm. What we don't know what her tolerance for alcohol was. Right. Uh, the idea, though, of her actually dying there and the, then being transported to where she was found. That's a little harder, just simply because it's very hard to move bodies. Yeah. And getting a body in that area through the brush, because I saw some of the pictures that they had of the area, and, and then, you know, all of that, that's a lot of work. Yeah. I think if something like that happened, she, you know, might have just been beaten and then took off again and could have you know, slipped and fallen. But again, that's something that can be followed up on. And if they had, 
looked upon it as a critical missing person. Possibly somebody would have come forward earlier and would have been willing to cooperate. But it's my understanding that the person who gave this information is not willing to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I have a question for you, Jim. What does determine when a person is considered critical missing? Uh, Just when they're at a danger to themselves. Let's say that somebody has dementia. They're out wandering the street. We don't know where they are. And they Mm -hmm. end up missing. Just a danger to themselves or others, but mostly to themselves. And she was a danger to herself. Yeah, exactly. If you look at everything that her parents said and everything that she did, and she'd already had interactions, like I said earlier, with the police a few times, like that is exactly what it should have been. It was a call for help, but she didn't get that help that she needed that I think could have prevented this from happening. And a lot of times (laughs) I know my colleagues are reluctant to go above and beyond just because they're afraid of being criticized by their own, you know, colleagues. But, you know, you shouldn't have done that. You know, all you're doing is making work for people. She would have been fine, that sort of stuff. You see, she is fine. Here Mm -hmm. she is. But, you know, the, the safest way would have been just to have treated this like a critical missing person, yeah. call out the search team. You know, like they were talking about they didn't call canine because canines are for criminals and not for missing persons. But they would be for a critical missing person. Right. Yeah. I mean, that could be a tool, to, you know, to help track them down. You know, helicopters with a, with a, let's say heat sensing, uh, whatever they have up there these days <laughs> right. that help to see through brush, things along that line. You know, all of that could have been done. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's so many things that we can go off on so many different tangents and talking about with, you know, with Misty's case. It just, you know, it it breaks my heart because all I did, you know, the last few days was you know, watch different footage of Misty and who she was as a human being. And she 
was a bright, shining light. And I feel like I say that so much with all of the people that we talk about that are victims and whether or not Misty was murdered. You know, she was a victim because she had lifelong, you know, childhood sexual abuse, PTSD that she was open about in addition to her, you know, her mental health. And of course that all affects her mental health and not getting the help she needed. But, you know, I'd love to know what you think. I love how you shared the takeaways with us, but I would love to know what you think we can do moving forward to help prevent this happening to the Misties of the world? Like, is there more training that has to happen in the police department? Yeah. And there's so many different agencies out there trying different things. Yeah. It's going to take a major investment, not only in money, but also, you know, other resources, a commitment from the agency to train their people and make sure that they follow their training and that they make use of these resources. And that's why, like I had mentioned before, a unbiased review with all the stakeholders involved. Mm -hmm. And the stakeholders in this case are also Missy's family. Even though there is a policy or a procedure in place, and this is the way we're taught to do things, the, the agency needs to understand how the public perceives that policy and procedure. And, you know, do they perceive it as, okay, you did right under the policy, but was it the right thing to do? Uh, There's a big difference. And too often we fall back on, no, they followed the proper policy. Well, maybe they did to the letter, but not the spirit. I love that, that, Jim. Jim. I love that. To the letter, but not the spirit. If you could speak to the young men and women who want to be police officers, what advice would you give them going into the field? Like what advice would help them? I think one of the things that you have to recognize is too often we fall into our own little cocoon. Mm. We try to isolate ourselves and protect ourselves. And we need to kind of expand our horizons beyond our coworkers and so that we can, you know, better off understand, you know, different types of people, things along that line. But the other thing is, is we also have to realize that uh, it's so easy to pigeonhole people and pigeonhole neighborhoods. Like I just remember back when I was working a series of gang homicides in this one neighborhood, every, you know, body that I personally dealt with was, you know, either involved in drugs, you know, selling drugs, there were murders and things like that. And so we all kind of got the attitude, this is a neighborhood that, you know, was lost. Mm. And it was one day when we were, I was out knocking on doors, trying to do a canvas. And this woman opened her door and invited me in and, and her family was in there and they were the loveliest people. And that made me realize that these people are the norm. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not criminals. I mean, they, but they live in this neighborhood. They're stuck in a bad situation. They're dealing with it the best way we can. And, you know, we're supposed to be there to help them. Right. That's the oath that you took, right? That it is it. It's sometimes hard to do. But, you know, like I said, if you look at not only doing things just by the book. Yeah. And also, you know, just don't take shortcuts. Yes. The shortcuts is what gets you in trouble. That's so true. And that's in life too, really. Yeah. So one positive thing that came from this horrific tragedy was the founding of the Misty Upham Award for Young Native Actors at the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. It started in 2021. And every year, 
they recognize young Native American actors with exceptional talent. So Jim, that's just one of the lights that happened. Can you tell us what is the light for you in this case? The fact that it's getting out there and the fact that one of the things is, is that we're not just saying blame the police. Nope. Uh, we're not just saying those officers screwed up that day. Yeah. Uh, what we're saying is there is a lot that contributed to this. There's a lot of things that if something had just been done a little bit differently at this point, at several points along the way, this need not have happened. Mm-hmm. And we nearly need to look at this from the big picture, identify what those points were and how we can prevent this sort of stuff from happening in the future. And just like you know, other people who are going to be viewing this, like, like myself, I, didn't, I was unaware of this case. Right. And I did not know all the ins and outs of it. But here's a person who's very much self-aware of her own mental illness, who is trying to get help, mm-hmm. but the help just isn't there. And as a result, this happens. So, you know, hopefully that message will get to them. Situations in their own life, they'll try to maybe, you know, work harder to get help, but also to help improve the system so that when somebody becomes vulnerable like she did that day, she just wouldn't be ignored. And that's it right there. Mm -hmm. You just answered all of my last questions, you know, (laughs) because what are the positive changes, you know, that could prevent these tragedies? And you just said it, to not be ignored. Simple as that. You know, everyone is a human being. We all do the same things. With that being said, Jim, again, you know, thank you so much for taking time, you know, be with us here on Facing Evil. We we so respect your intelligence, you know, your years of, you know, work in the police departments. Like, we really thank you uh, for being on the show. Mahalo nui loa. <laughs> yes, Jim, and thank you for your compassion. You're a very compassionate soul, and we truly appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. Today's message of hope and healing goes out to Misty Upham. Misty's star was on the rise. In fact, she once even told a reporter, quote, acting saved my life. But other circumstances ultimately conspired to be too much. Her mental illness, which was intensified by things like recurrent poverty, violence, and sexual trauma, as well as other realities brought on by life as an indigenous woman, just ultimately took her life. Yeah, and months before she died, Misty founded the Indigo Children's Group, which she hoped would provide Native children living on reservations with artistic role models and opportunities. And in 2021, the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program created the Misty Upham Award for Young Native Actors, which offers a cash prize of $500 and performance opportunities, as well as a message from Miss Meryl Streep. That's amazing. Fern Renville, who leads the theater group that gave Misty her start, Red Eagle Soaring, acknowledges the mark that Misty left, saying, Her legacy is huge for Native young people interested in being in film. It's a door that she opened. It seems possible to them. Misty did it. We can do it. We'd like to leave you with this inspiring quote from Misty. 
Allow yourself the freedom to dream. Dreams are what make your entire life worth living. Without dreams, we are nothing. Onward and upward, Imua. Imua. Well, that's our show for today. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's discussion and if there's a case you'd like for us to cover. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. And one small request, if you haven't already, please find us on iTunes and give us a good rating and a good review if you like what we do. Your support is always cherished. Until next time, aloha. Facing Evil is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The show is hosted by Rasha Pecorero and Yvette Gentile. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Jesse Funk. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producer Tracy Kaplan. Our researcher is Carolyn Talmadge. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.